So we are beginning a new series of sermons. We finished Colossians last week, and uh, today we're looking at a, this is a topical sermon series, which is a little bit unusual uh, for me, but it is all, uh, we're staying in the book of Proverbs, so we'll take particular passages from Proverbs to talk about these seven sins. Now this uh, classification was developed by the early monks and then uh, improved upon by the medieval theologians. And if you think, well, who cares, right? It's true. Nobody really cares who developed it. But I'm, I'm going to show you how true this is to our lives, how accurate their description of our fight against sin is. Uh, I think this classification of seven sins, so gluttony, sloth, greed, lust, envy, anger, and pride, it helps us to discover what we're dealing with and how to overcome these particular sins and how to trust God's grace for that fight. One writer said, as a diagnostic, the system holds great value, creating questions and categories that help us see and defeat our darkest inclinations. So today we begin with gluttony, and everybody should feel uncomfortable already, okay? It's an important sermon for me to hear personally, and and I will preach to myself as much as I preach to you, but I encourage you to listen in and maybe you can identify with some of my struggles with gluttony. So let's uh, stand as you're able and affirm our trust in God's word, and then I will read our two passages from the book of Proverbs. All flesh is like grass, and all his glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please remain standing as I read Proverbs 23, verses 20 through 21, and that's on page 545 in your pew Bible. Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters, eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And then Proverbs 25, verse 16, 25, 16, and that's found on page 543, 543 in your pew Bible. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. This is God's word, and you may be seated. What I'd like us to do this morning is two things. I'd like us to define what gluttony is. And then I'd like us to learn how we can defeat it. So first we'll define it, and then we'll talk about defeating it. So to use our military theme for Lent, we'll first gather intelligence by going on a reconnaissance mission, and then we will engage the enemy we understand and know much better. Okay, let's define it. So in our text, Proverbs 25, 16, pretty straightforward passage. If you find honey, don't eat too much of it. Because if you eat too much of it, you'll throw it up. You'll get sick and you'll throw up. So eat the right portion. And so I think it's appropriate for us to start with a simple definition that we will improve upon as we go. But we start with saying gluttony is overeating, just eating too much. Uh, I had a friend um, in high school, this is an embarrassing story that reflects on the kind of people I hang out 
with in high school and the kind of person I was in high school. I had a friend who said, uh, I know my limit in drinking. He said, I, know, I, I don't ever drink more than I'm supposed to. When I start throwing up, I know I've had enough, <laughs> and so I don't drink anymore. True story. I'm afraid that most of us that hung out with him were not as careful about drinking as, as he was. <laughs> so let's accept first this definition of gluttony as overeating. But what we need to be careful with here is that for many of us, it's easy to say gluttony equals overeating equals obesity equals extra weight. And so we look around and we say, well, this person must be a glutton because they are bigger, right? And that is completely inappropriate for us to do. Because there are many people who are skinny and fit and are tremendous gluttons. And there are many people who are overweight to our eye, and it has nothing to do with their relationship with food. So I want to caution us first, okay? I want to caution us against judging. I want to caution us against making it too simple and making these connections that may not always be there. Okay, let's improve on our definition a little bit. So it's not just overeating. There's more to it. C.S. Lewis says, for example, he says that gluttony is being too interested in food. It's being too interested in food. Thomas Aquinas, one of those medieval theologians, says gluttony denotes inordinate desire in eating and drinking. It's inordinate desire. You desire it too much. You desire it in an inappropriate way. Aquinas, in fact, gives us five kinds of gluttony. Aquinas couldn't write about anything without giving you five, six, twelve kinds of it and answering 15 objections if you read Aquinas. So this is what he does with gluttony, and I think it's actually very helpful to us. He says there are five kinds of gluttony. First, there is excessive eating. Now, we've already seen that in Proverbs 25. That's just overeating, eating too much, excessive eating. But secondly, there is sumptuous eating. Sumptuous. When's the last time you used that word? Sumptuous. It means seeking out expensive or rare food or drink. So you're very careful. You want the best. You want something that only you can have. Thirdly, there is desiring food prepared in a certain way. Now, I called it, it's not Aquinas, this is me, I called it culinary snobbery. You're not going to eat it unless it's prepared exactly right. You want your steak to be done exactly right, you're sending it back. You want it specifically in a certain way. Fourthly, Aquinas tells us there is eating at an appropriate, inappropriate time. So, for example, snacking between meals or grabbing a bowl of chips before dinner. That's gluttony too, because the timing isn't right. You have times for meals, but you can't wait, so you eat before or eat sometimes right after. And finally, the fifth kind, according to Aquinas, is eating greedily or hastily. In other words, eating in an inappropriate way. Now, Aquinas just gives us a picture into the, the ways we can misuse food. Yes, overeating is part of it, but also what you're expecting from it, how you approach it, what manner are you eating it, and what time you're eating. All these things have to come into consideration when we think about gluttony. Overeating is just one possible 
type of gluttony, and focusing on that too much, I don't think, is helpful. Any expression, according to Aquinas, any expression of our inordinate desire in food or drink is gluttony. Now, am I making you uncomfortable? I've made myself uncomfortable just by writing these things because I can point to specific instances in my week when these things have happened. It's easy to say, well, I don't eat too much. But do you eat the kind of food that only meets your standards? Do you, meet at the right, do you eat at the right times? Do you eat in the right way? I mean, all those things are important. Now, it's going to get worse as we get deeper into the subject. Going to uncover another layer of understanding gluttony. Gluttony is using food or drink to solve unrelated problems. Gluttony is using food or drink to solve unrelated problems. Aquinas gave us a good classification of what it looks like. But we're going to get a little bit deeper and then much deeper as we go into it to understand how it works and why it happens. Gluttony is using food or drink to solve unrelated problems. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we often use food or drink to accomplish something that food or drink is never meant to accomplish. We attempt to solve a problem that is impossible to be solved by food. Let me give you some examples, and this is where it's going to hit, if not all of us, most of us. Many of us seek to be comforted with food and drink. I speak from personal experience. You come home and you're tired and you're frustrated. And you're not really hungry. But you go to something, right, that gives you some feeling of comfort. Food isn't meant to do that. What problem is food supposed to solve? Hunger. There's only one. This is physical hunger. That's what food is for. And so if we're using that to comfort ourselves, we're misusing it. That's an inordinate desire towards food. Some of us use food or drink as a means of escape. Now, I don't want to deal with my problems. I'll just eat. Sometimes this can lead to serious addictions like alcoholism, for example. You're escaping. You're trying, to, you're trying not to think about your problems. You're trying to avoid things in your life. And so you go to food or drink to, to numb you or to distract you. How about control? If I can control what I eat, maybe I can control my life as well. Now, this can lead to, to serious issues and has led and does lead to serious issues. Now, on, on the one side, there's dieting, right? I'm going to diet. I'm going to determine exactly what I eat, and not for good reasons, because there are good reasons to diet, certainly. Health reasons, allergies, absolutely. There's good reasons to limit what you eat. But if you're doing that to exercise control over your life, and this becomes a vehicle of your rule over your life, that often leads to much greater concerns like, like addiction or eating disorders. How about identity? How many of us identify by what we eat or don't eat? I'm a vegan. I'm not a vegan personally, but I know many people who identify with that. I'm a foodie. I may be a foodie. I don't know. You'd have to tell me. And it's easy to identify with that and say, this is who I am. 
You know, I go to cool restaurants. I keep up on food news. I watch on Netflix. My queue is full of food shows. I'm a barbecue lover. I love meat. I knew a guy who he would do a meat fest every year. He's very proud of that. You know, it's part of his identity. Or a beer snob. You know, he won't catch me drinking Bud Light, you know. <laughs> much better taste than that, so. But it easy, easily becomes part of our identity. It becomes who we are. And so it becomes how we identify ourselves and how we want other people to see us. Now, is food meant to do that? It's not. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to fill your physical hunger and meant to quench your physical thirst. It's not meant to give you identity. What about acceptance? I'm using food to acquire acceptance from other people based on how I look. So I won't eat something because it's going to make me look bad and that's people are going to judge me. They're not going to accept me. So I'm going to use food to gain acceptance with others. Now there are many other ways that we use food to solve unrelated problems. Food is not supposed to do that. Drink is not supposed to do that. But we grab onto him, and, we be, and that becomes part of our identity. It becomes how we handle stress. It becomes how we, how we approach other people. Okay, so it's not just overeating, is it? It's not just eating at the wrong time. Now it becomes a much deeper problem. Now I'm using food for the wrong reasons, and I'm pursuing things in life that food cannot give me. But it gets, it gets a little worse than that. We come to the deepest of all levels and the most helpful definition of gluttony. And this is the definition you have on your card because that is the level we need to be dealing with gluttony on if we have any chance of overcoming it. And here's the definition. Gluttony is attempting to satisfy our spiritual appetites with food and drink. It's attempting to satisfy our spiritual appetites with food and drink. Gluttony, like all sins, is ultimately about worship. It's ultimately about what we seek in our existence. One Christian relates their experience. They say, in my own life, I can see myriad ways in which gluttony has become an idol. I have an almost worshipful relationship with food. Does that describe you? An almost worshipful relationship with food. I eat when I'm in between meals. I eat when I'm in my car. I eat when I'm bored. I eat when I'm restless, when I'm frustrated, when I'm watching TV, when I'm on the computer. I eat constantly for no other reason than that I can eat almost any time I want. For any reason and for no reason at all. It's about worship. It's about spiritual goals we're trying to accomplish through eating and drinking. The underlying problem of gluttony is our disordered worship. After our physical need is satisfied when we eat, we continue to eat because our spiritual hunger is still there. We eat not only to fill our empty stomachs, but to fill our empty hearts. We look for perfection in food and drink because we know that we are not perfect ourselves. We seek control through food because we are lost and adrift. We use food to create our identity because we do not know who we are. Do you see what I'm getting at? We can't address gluttony unless we see it as a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual hunger that is directed, misdirected, toward food and drink. And because it is rooted in false worship, it is idolatry. 
Listen to Jonathan Bowers. He's one of the authors in the book I recommended on the seven deadly sins for Lent. And you can easily get this book online for free. He says, gluttony puts food in the place of God. That's the definition of idolatry. Gluttony puts food in the place of God. Gluttony presents the chief end of man as a table well stocked and a stomach well filled. Hunger becomes the great enemy. The refrigerator stands as the temple where we find our deliverance. What a timely word to us. What a timely word to our culture. Do we seek deliverance in food? As silly as it sounds, but is it really just an expression of the spiritual inner workings of our heart? I have these spiritual longings, and I don't know where to take them, so I take them to food. And I try to satisfy my spiritual appetite with food and drink. Apostle Paul puts it even in a more chilling way in Philippians 3.19. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. That's the definition of gluttony, when your belly becomes your God. And so you serve your God, you worship your God by providing food and drink that your belly wants. There are so many stories in Scripture and in life of us making decisions that are completely irrational because our God, our belly, tells us to do it. And so we do it, even though it doesn't make sense. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to eat late at night. I know that. I don't need any more information. You don't need to talk to me and try to prove to me that it affects my health negatively. But why do I do it? Because my belly tells me to. My God tells me to. And my relationship with food is disordered. So I do bad things because my heart isn't set right. Now, how do we defeat it? Okay, that's hopefully we're uncomfortable. Hopefully we're, we're looking at our lives. We're seeing different problems we have with food. Now, how do we defeat it? And we defeat it by faith in the gospel. Just like any sin, there's only one answer. It's in the gospel of Jesus, it's what Christ has done for us. And I'm going to work through the scriptures to show you this theme of spiritual appetites being directed towards food and Christ coming to satisfy those appetites and to free us from sin and specifically the sin of gluttony. I'm going to work through it, okay? So you're going to give me a little bit of time and I'm going to leave stuff out, obviously, but I'm going to highlight, hopefully, what I think are the most important pieces of this. When God created human beings, he gave us food to eat. Our eating and drinking were designed to sustain life, but not just physical life, but life in the context of our relationship with our Creator. That's why he made food enjoyable. Not only that we would eat it and say, now I can live, thank you God for that, but also that it would taste sweet to us, that it would taste good to us, and we would direct our worship towards God. The way we're created to function, we're supposed to eat and drink in gratitude for God's gift to us. This is why Christians pray before meals, and Christians in Ukraine pray before and after meals. Those Baptists stand up after the meal and pray and thank God for what they just ate. Why do they do that? Because they want to eat according to the design of creation, as people who are grateful for God's gifts to us. Our spiritual and physical appetites in creation 
were supposed to be satisfied in perfect harmony. There was, there was no disjunction. As we're eating, we're worshiping. As we're eating, we're grateful that God gives us his gifts to sustain us because he's our creator. He, he gave us life, and this life is sustained by gifts he continues to give us. Now, what happens in the fall? Adam and Eve could eat of every tree in the garden except for one. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. In a way, what God is saying is he's saying, do not use food to satisfy other appetites. Just do your physical stuff. That's what it's for. Don't try to solve unrelated problems with food and drink. But in Genesis 3, sin enters God's creation. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it remarkable that sin comes into our world through our taste buds? Have you thought about that? There's so many ways it could, it could, it could have come in, but it comes through our mouths. Eve looks at something that looks good to her, and the God belly tells her, eat it. And Adam is all in. And so sin enters our creation. It, it enters our world and completely transforms us and transforms the world. So the first sin, the original sin, is a sin of gluttony. Adam and Eve overate because they ate something they were not supposed to eat. They had an inordinate desire for the forbidden fruit. They wanted it more than they wanted to please their creator. Their belly became their God. They used food to gain knowledge that was independent from God's revelation, knowledge of good and evil, to create identity apart from God's love, to take control outside of God's rule, and to find fulfillment away from God's presence. All of that was happening as they were eating the fruit. You see, it wasn't just physical. Of course it wasn't. Spiritual appetites were redirected towards something else that couldn't provide the solution. It couldn't provide satisfaction. Sin is always rooted in a distorted desire, in a misdirected worship, and in a dis disordered hunger. Now there's horizontal implications of gluttony, Sin coming come into the world fractures us. It distorts our relationships. I, I'm not going to go into this, but I want you to know it's important. And in fact, the kids in children's church are talking a little bit about that more than we are here. They're looking at the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man feasting sumptuously every day. But there's a poor person who has nothing to eat. It has implications for how we relate to others, how society is built, how our culture operates. So keep that in mind, even though I can't go into it this morning. The language of eating and drinking is used all over Scripture to describe the brokenness of our sinful condition. Have you wondered why, in the Psalms, so much of our longing for God is described in terms of our physical appetites? King David says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's using the language of eating to describe his spiritual longing towards God. And then God himself in Isaiah 55 puts his offer of grace, his offer of redemption, his offer of salvation in terms of food and drink. Why is he doing that? Because there's a connection between our spiritual 
and physical appetites. And we have been trying to satisfy our spiritual appetites through physical means. And God wants to reverse it. This is what God says in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. That's everyone is thirsting because we can't find satisfaction in food because it's a deeper longing. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. This is God speaking to us. He's essentially saying, stop glutting on food, trying to get spiritual results. Come to me, he says. He says, here I am. I want to satisfy those deeper spiritual appetites with me. Come to me. And you don't need anything. You don't need money because this, is, this offer is by grace to you. Come and take it. Come and drink. Come and eat and be satisfied with this rich experience. Now, this is redemption in a nutshell. God comes to us by grace and saying, you have no money, but I will give you a gift that will solve your deepest problems. And of course, the culmination of that is in Christ. But throughout Scripture, and we'll get to Jesus in a minute, but throughout Scripture, you see this language of food. In Exodus 12, the Israelites are leaving Egypt, right? And God says, I'm going to redeem you. The final plague. He says, I'm going to redeem you through a meal of roasted lamb. <laughs> Amazing. Why would God do that? He's showing them that True provision comes from him. And yes, there is sacrifice. Yes, there's the covering of, of people by blood from God's wrath. All of that is there. But there's also food and drink that's there. And God is saying, as you eat, you realize you have to rely on me to satisfy these deep spiritual longings. A lot of stuff happens in the wilderness after they leave. There's manna that's given to them. They complain. There's tension between the food that God gives us and the food we left in Egypt. They remember longingly the leeks and garlic of Egypt. Do you remember that? It's amazing how, how vivid their memory is of what they left behind. And God says, I will provide for you. All your appetites will be satisfied by me. Spiritual, yes, and physical, I will give you food. You want meat? I'll give you meat. And he does that. He provides for them. And of course, then they get to the land that God lovingly calls the land of milk and honey, right? Flowing of milk and honey. Again, you have the same language over and over again describing their experience in terms of eating and drinking. But they feast on high places and they pray to other gods to provide food for them. And then the culmination, of course, comes in the New Testament when Jesus comes in the final, the decisive, the ultimate provision of God's grace to satisfy our spiritual appetites comes in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. I can take you to many places, but I'll only take you to John 6. It's a great passage that you have the intersection of spiritual and physical, our eating and our, our feasting on Christ. All of that comes together in John 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. They gather 12 baskets of stuff. Abundant provision. What is Jesus saying? I am here to provide for you. Don't come with your money. You don't need money. Just come by faith and I will give you everything that you need. 
People get this. They're saying, oh, Jesus is feeding people. They keep following him. And Jesus says, you know, you, you are seeking me. This is verse 26 and 27 in John 6. It says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus says, you get too focused on this physical stuff. And that's important, and I will provide for you. But don't seek spiritual ends through physical means. He's saying there is a solution that is given to you. There is food that can satisfy your spiritual hunger. There is drink that can quench your spiritual thirst. What is it? Verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this is all in the context of all of us dealing with gluttony. All of us looking to satisfy our bellies. And Jesus says, you need to satisfy your soul. And I am the bread of life. He says, I'm right here. And if you feast on me, you will not hunger. You will not thirst. Because those deepest longings would be satisfied in me. By his life, Jesus re-entered God's creation as the new Adam. And he undid what Adam had done. Adam couldn't resist the God of his belly, right? But Jesus fasted. And when Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by the devil himself, he resists temptation to eat by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, this is how humanity is supposed to function. We don't base our existence only on physical provision of food. But we base our existence on what God says about us, our identity in Him, our relationship with Him. Jesus lived among gluttons and drunkards. He was so closely associated with them, with us, I should say, that he himself was accused of gluttony and drunkenness. Isn't it amazing that God himself would come into our world and be okay with people slandering him as a glutton and drunkard? By his death, Jesus reordered our relationship with God. He's the lamb who was slain to release us from the slavery of sin. His blood makes us God's covenant people on the way to the land of promise. When he was in the upper room with the disciples celebrating Passover, which is a, a release from slavery, right? God taking them out of, of, of Egypt with a lamb. Jesus says, and this is Matthew 26, he says, Jesus takes the bread and after blessing it, he breaks it and gives it to the disciples and says, take it, eat it, this is my body. And he takes a cup and when he gives thanks for the cup. He gives it to them and says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says over and over again, he says, I am the provision for your spiritual hunger. I am the provision for your spiritual existential thirst. And I am here and I'm offering myself to you by breaking myself and giving it myself to you. And then the resurrection in the resurrection, Jesus assures us of the coming restoration of creation. What did Jesus do after he rose again and met with his disciples? Do you remember? They seemingly just ate all the time. 
Jesus says, I think it's time for breakfast. Let me grill some fish for you. They're eating. They're feasting together. Why? Because once again, Jesus is bringing the physical hunger and the spiritual hunger together under him. And he's saying, the restoration of creation, this is how it's going to be. We're going to feast together. And your spiritual and physical appetites will work once again in complete harmony. Now, this is not surprising that he ate all the time after his resurrection. If you read the scriptures and realize the image of glory, the image of our eternal relationship with God is actually feasting. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, and we, we just sang a couple of songs ago about this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Notice the attention God gives to describing the menu for that feast. He's not messing around. He's saying, this is how you will know that you will be completely satisfied with me. You will have no regrets. This will be, I call it, worshipful overeating. We will be together, and this, is, this will be our experience because your physical and spiritual appetites will be completely reunited in perfect harmony. He says, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is the image God wants us to have when we think about future, when we think about glory. What will we be doing? Well, we'll be working, we'll be worshiping, yes, but we'll also be eating and drinking with God. Restored creation will be marked by our satisfaction in God. The Bible ends the picture of the world with, with the river of life. This is Revelation 22. River of life flowing through the streets of the city. Fr flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God's presence. Our perfect restored relationship with Him. And our perfect restored relationship with food because there's the tree of life. With the twelfth fruit. Do you remember that? For every month, God says, I'm going to give you a different fruit. And you're going to enjoy it and you're going to be completely satisfied with me. To live with God forever. This is our destiny. Our appetites, physical and spiritual, perfectly satisfied. This is why, and I'm going to say something a little bit controversial because I need to wake you up just a little bit. I actually think overeating occasionally is good for Christians because it points to the restored creation. It points to the feasting. Now, if it's a regular thing, it's a problem. But when you feast on God spiritually, it's okay to feast on his gifts physically too, sometimes. So how do we defeat gluttony now? How do we deal with all these different kinds of gluttony? How do we deal with all the different ways we use food to, to get into these problems it can't solve? How do we get into this deeper spiritual level that we brought into our relationship with food and drink? And there's one answer. It's on your card because I want you to remember. I want you to practice it. And the answer is we feast on Christ our portion. We feast on Christ our portion. What does it mean to feast on Christ? It means to worship him. It means to build our identity on how he sees us. 
It means to seek his rule in our lives. It means to indulge ourselves in fellowship with him. It means to seek meaning and comfort and joy and and strength in him and through him. It means to eat sumptuously from his word, to snack on it, to eat greedily and hastily from his word. It means to embrace his spirit so he can reorder our desires, restore our appetite for him, and bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives. It means to fill our hearts with him, to satisfy our souls with Christ. It means to have an inordinate desire for Jesus, to be obsessed with Jesus. It means to be too interested in him. It means to revel in our acceptance with God through Christ. That's what it means to feast on him. Those are the realities we're invited into by Christ himself. This is what he offers to us. It means to to believe the gospel, that Jesus came and died and rose again to welcome us into the eternal feast of God. Now, if what I'm saying resonates with you, you know this is the remedy against gluttony. Coincidentally, it's the remedy against every sin you're dealing with, but certainly against gluttony. Because when you're full spiritually, you're able to process your physical appetites in the right way. That doesn't mean you stop eating. It actually means you eat better. You eat in a better way. You eat with a better perspective. You eat more joyfully when the spiritual part of you has been feasting on Christ. I love the way Charles Spurgeon paints this picture of us as hungry beggars coming to Christ. He says, as for the Lord Jesus, he is so rich that if all the beggars in the universe would call at his door, he would not refuse one of them, but would set open the doors of his granaries and the hatchets of his butteries. Old language, but how vivid this is. He's got grain to give. He's got butter to give. Spurgeon says he will feast the world. He's the heir of all things. There's no bottom to his treasures. He is the true Solomon, and his daily provision is not only enough for all his household, but for all those who lie starving on the highways and in the hedges. The wealth of nations is nothing to the wealth of Jesus. Come then, my heart, beg largely of thy Lord, and when he hears thee, beg again. This is a picture Spurgeon gives us of feasting on Christ. This is what it means. Those are the spiritual realities that are available to all believers. My question is, are you taking advantage of that? Are you messing around with food and drink and seeking to find what food and drink cannot give you? Use food, use drink appropriately, enjoy it, be sustained by it, but do not seek redemption in it. Do not seek salvation in it. There's no meaning beyond the satisfaction of your hunger in food. Come to Christ and feast on him. I'll finish by giving you very briefly two Uh, disciplines or two two things to practically apply after the sermon to deal with gluttony one is a pattern of regular fasting in your life and this is on your card establish a pattern of regular fasting in your life we'll talk more about it on friday so come to the prayer meeting we'll talk about fasting much more than i will now but fasting resets our spiritual appetites 
It exposes our idolatry and turns our attention back to God. Fasting is an expression of our prioritizing our spiritual satisfaction over our physical needs. Fasting wakes us up. It restarts those, those processes in our soul and saying, you've been trying to get what you can get from God in food. So distance yourself from food and rediscover what God has to offer for you. I am convinced that part of the problem of the Western church is that we do not fast. We live in a culture that is so abundant with things and we freely give into it and we don't check our hearts. And because of that, I think we are anemic and weak as Christians. This is why Kevin has to come up here and tell us to pray. Because <laughs> we have to think about it and we have to decide to do that. Because our bellies are full. And secondly, and I'll finish with this, take communion in faith. That's another discipline for you. Take communion in faith. Come to the table with the intention of feasting on Christ by faith. In fact, I encourage you to actually pray that as you walk towards the table. Pray, Lord, satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love. And you come to the table and you say, I'm going to feast on Jesus. I'm going to appropriate all those spiritual realities into my life. 